Welcome, friends. This is Jessica Ortner coming to you with another incredible interview. Did you know that attributes like resiliency can be built like a muscle? Well, today we are going to explore that and so much more. I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Rick Hansen. He is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and a New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 29 languages. He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. As an expert on positive neuroplasticity, his work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, NPR, and other major media, and he was generous enough to sit down with me to share his incredible insights on how we can feel more joy and resiliency. We cover a lot of what's going on right now with the pandemic, and I found it to be an enlightening conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Tapping Solution Podcast. I'm Alex Ortner, and along with my brother Nick and my sister Jessica, we've helped millions of people around the world for over 10 years to transform their lives. And all using the brain rewiring, energy shifting, out of this world amazing technique known as tapping. Each week, I'll be sharing information, strategies, tapping, and at times inspiring interviews, all to help you live your best life. All right, and we'll jump right in. Rick, how are you? Thanks for being with us. I'm really happy to be here with you, Jessica. You know, as we said just before we started, I met you a while ago, and I just was very struck by your genuineness and helpfulness and sincerity. And so it's an honor to be here. And wow, tapping, you know, it's really become a thing, hasn't it? Yeah. it it's amazing to see it spread and reflecting on your work always really helps us mm-hmm. uh, as well. And so I'm, I'm happy that you're here and we got on this call together and we started chatting and I said, wait, 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 let's just (laughs) press record so people can hear this conversation. I don't think there's anyone in the world that's not talking about what's going on right now with the pandemic, with all of the uncertainty. And I, you were just sharing a thought. I'd love you to Oh, sure. To go into that thought or, we, or, you know, we can start somewhere else. But um, I, I feel like with you, I can talk for five hours and uh-huh. I just will keep it to one. But I wanted to start recording as soon as we could. Yeah. Well, what has struck me about this pandemic is that like almost any kind of emergency, this is one that we saw coming. We, the national security people, the public health people saw December, early January. It's like a huge hurricane just slowly coming, but we were clearly in the course. And now the storm is upon us and it will be on upon us and its consequences, especially will be upon us for many, many months to come, if not a year or two or longer, especially economically. So here it is. All right. And when the storm comes, it throws you back on yourself and on your important relationships. What what are they? Right. What's there? And I think it can teach us that a lot of the time we're sort of propped up by our activities and interactions and situations and the experiences we're having. And as long as the music is playing, it's all okay, right? We're experiencing one state after another, one experience after another. But when the music stops playing and the bottom falls out, as it so clearly has, we're left with the traits, whatever we've cultivated inside, our good heart, our courage, our grit, determination, compassion, gratitude, skillfulness, happiness, on and on it goes, right? And I think it can be a wake-up call in a good way 
for people at a personal level about the importance of building resources inside, investing in lasting traits, positive traits inside, um, wholesome qualities of mind and heart. And also, frankly, I'm a psychologist, not a politician. So anything I say about that is like the ranting of a guy at the bar, you know, but no bars involved <laughs> here. But anyway, but it seems so clear to me as well that uh, what this situation has exposed in many of the countries in the world, certainly in America, is the consequences of not investing in the common good and, in fact, attacking the very idea of the good in common. And um, we're seeing the consequences of attacking science, journalism, civil society, and all the rest of that. So here we are. Um, what do we do about it? Well, I think it's time to reinvest. It's time to reinvest in other people, to keep them in your heart, to realize they're scared too, they're freaked out too, they've lost things also, you know, and to invest in ourselves through the methods, you know, that you and I are familiar with um, and grow the good inside ourselves a little bit every day. So we have more and more of it inside to share with others and, and keep some for ourselves. Yeah, I was reflecting with a friend that it seems like this, the uncertainty and the stress. Yeah is magnifying the other things that we were practicing before. So for example, I noticed that this is me just observing my friends who were naturally prone to worry are incredibly worried. Mm. My friends who tended to be more optimistic are really doubling down on that optimism. Mm. It's like everyone is kind of going back to whatever pattern that they had before. Uh, when it comes to our temperament, uh, you teach what I find so interesting about your work is this knowledge that we are able to grow things. We can grow mm. resiliency and right. we can begin to work on these feelings. Can you talk a little bit about one, the pattern that people find themselves in and how do we begin to de decipher like what is us and <laughs> what's just a pattern? Does that make sense? Like what's our temperament and what's a pattern? Well, and at the deepest level, what's our true nature and, you know, right, all that. Okay, so uh, as you know, I'll just say it kind of briefly here. So I'm a psychologist and I really focus on what could be called positive neuroplasticity, this fundamental power that we have to help ourselves really grow from the experiences we're having. So actually, you can grow happiness. You can grow resilience. You can grow calm. You can grow skillfulness with other people. I just recently have been kind of running through a little micro tiff with my wife and my mind. And I'm zeroing in, you know, after the initial reaction of like, rah, 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 she's so wrong, rah, rah, rah. You know, <laughs> I kind of <laughs> yeah. start trying to help myself come to a softer landing about it. Okay, what do I need to learn here? What do I need to learn about my attitude? How can I deepen my compassion for her? How can I look at things through her perspective? You know, not to give up my own rights, but just how can I grow, right? It seems such a critical question. Otherwise, people's growth rate through life is flat. There's no return on investment, in effect, on the experiences we're having. So I specialize in that area, taking into good, you know, how to actually turn states to traits so that whether in formal environments, like formal practice, like tapping, say, or uh, let's say a psychotherapy appointment, we're just in the flow of life as you move along. How can we help the hard one experiences we're having? And in fact, sometimes deliberately call up useful experiences. How can we hardwire them into our nervous system? So to me, that means giving us this phenomenal power from the inside out to guide who, are, who we are becoming. Isn't that a profound power? 
right? We have to yeah. claim it. We have to take responsibility for it. But we have that power. And as a longtime uh, psychotherapist and teacher and meditation teacher and all that, I just think we routinely, the dirty little secret is people work hard to have useful experiences of one kind or another, which are then wasted on the brain. They have no lasting impact because we forget the second necessary step. Experiencing does not equal learning. We forget to turn on the inner recorder <laughs> and help things. Right. Really so land. it's like doing the same thing over and over again and not learning our lesson, just being stuck in a pattern. Yeah. Well, or mean? being propped up by our, by our practices. So I, I know people who, for example, meditate, let's say, or practice gratitude. And when they do the practice, they feel good in the moment. But an hour later or a day later, they don't they've not developed trait calm. They're not calmer mm. by nature. They're not wiser. They're not more mindful, actually. And that's a that's unfortunate. We wasted all the value. We didn't take that extra little beat to be humble enough to receive the powerful experience into ourselves. You know, we see ourselves, right? We watch ourselves all the time. We move through life. We hardly notice good facts around us if we do. Uh, we hardly feel anything. If we feel something, uh, we don't take it in. I mean, that's kind of right. where we are. So then we're left with our reactions. Just like you said, we're left with our old bad habits. And um, so I went on a bit about positive neuroplasticity and that power. I can still speak to her. What's your, what's your take on what I've said so far? And then maybe we could talk about the difference between patterns and temperaments. I... What's coming to mind, which is another, which another question, which you can see yeah. when, how you want to weave this into, but what does it mean to be humble enough to take in the yeah. experience? That is really right, isn't it? So to yeah. just be concrete. So here you and I are, we don't know each other super well, and still there's a mutual warmth and respect. It's real. Uh, it's not more than what it is, but it's not less than what it is. Think about so many moments like this in our day. Okay, we're having this experience. And what the brain's tendency and the mind's tendency, therefore, to do is just keep racing on to the next thing. And mm -hmm. then we have a culture that really trains us to chase shiny objects. And then sometimes people have temperaments more toward the spirited, distractible end of the spectrum or stimulation seeking or people who are very creative, very bright. They, they're interested in the next thing, right? So we skitter on to the next thing before the current thing is really felt and has a chance for a beat, two, three, four, five seconds in a row, the course of a single breath to feel it. And as soon as a person does that, like you and I are probably doing it right now, I am, you feel the shift immediately. And in effect, what we're doing is we're receiving into ourselves. We're, we're, get, we're letting ourselves have this landing of the useful experience for those five seconds, you know, for the five or 10 or 20 seconds for that breath. And when we do that, he gradually, literally, um, gets woven into the fabric of the nervous system. There are physical changes in the brain. So increasingly, you have a sense of warm companionship with other people or a sense of being of worth, you know, being appreciated, feeling seen. You can carry that with you wherever you go. And to be to do that, I think we have to kind of get off our high horse and think we're masters of the universe and realize that we're scared monkeys, we're lonely, we're, we're longing, we have unmet needs, there are hollow places inside ourselves, and we need to be humble enough. You pick a different word, you know, modest, 
um, honest enough, vulnerable enough to realize that we are dependent, you know, we are needy in a, in a completely healthy way. And we can honor those longings. We can honor, honor those needs to, res- to actually take into ourselves what we long for. And interestingly, when people, when people do that, one, they become more resilient. They become tougher, stronger, more capable. Two, they become more generous. They become kinder, more forgiving, more, more willing, you know, in my own case with my wife to <gasps> take a breath. You know, and kind of return to baseline here, uh, you know, good baseline uh, with her. Uh, and so, in effect, we can also in this, if you will, receptive humility, you know, we, we, we practice for others, too, as well as for ourselves. Because as we fill ourselves up, we have more for them. Right. So, so is, an, is a part of this the ability to slow down? Do you feel like mm-hmm. we're not? taking in lessons simply because we aren't creating kind of the time and space to take a breath. We're just rushing to the next distraction. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. And the slowing down, it's so, it's, it's really wild to think about it. It's like people who work really hard to make a meal and then they just touch a spoon to their lips and move on to the next thing, you know? And Mm -hmm. the time it takes in the brain, you got neurons firing five to 50 times a second. You have these networks synchronizing many times a second. A lot can happen in a single breath. But if we don't give it at least that much, a handful of times every day, and maybe a little more at specific moments, like during a tapping session or or a a moment of gratitude at a meal, let's say, uh, if we don't give it that little time, we, you know, the, the learning that's occurring. The healing, growing, developing, transforming that's occurring is flat. It just doesn't happen because if you think about it, any increase in happiness, love, or wisdom that's stable, right? So that it's with you when the music stops playing and the bottom falls off, falls out, and maybe it's the worst day of your life or you're right next to someone else who's having the worst day of their life, right? Um you, you know, you have what you have inside is what you've cultivated inside over the years. And so um, what's also useful uh, is to specifically look for key resources, key strengths to grow these days. You know, when people are dealing with anxiety, for example, understandably, the sense of calm strength is a really important resource or being able to just relax the body and to release tension, really important inner strength, uh, being able to rest in the present and recognize in a felt way that you're actually okay in this moment. It's not a perfect moment. It's not a great moment. There are other things, you know, anxiety, sadness, whatever, arising in the mind, but still, you know, you're okay in your core. Uh, Those are useful resources to grow inside for anxiety. They're very timely. On the other hand, sometimes people like, they feel lonely right now, understandably. And so it's a really important opportunity to focus on, cultivating a feeling of connection with others, if only through looking at a nice person on Skype, as we're doing right Right. now, right? So, yeah. And I think that that loops us back. You're talking about cultivating, and I was asking you, what's the the difference between our, what we're born with, our kind of set points, and our ability to, to feel different and cultivate things? Can you kind of talk about that? Oh, yeah. This is one of the classic nature nurture questions, right? How right. much is each? Yeah. And um, basically, the really robust science that kind of coalesces around 
a number, says that roughly a third of the variation in, a, in characteristics in adults, personality characteristics, um, uh, whether a person is happy or sad, resilient or fragile, et cetera, et cetera. Roughly about a third of that variation is due to heritable factors baked into DNA. All right. This is how scientists talk about it. It's kind of a precise mm -hmm. and clear way to say it, which means that two thirds of the variation in general in the population is subject to influence. It's up for grabs, right? It's based on the world around us and how it lands. And it's also based in particular on how we relate to the world around us and cope with it and how we relate to our own experiences and manage our own thoughts and feelings over time. Two thirds, two thirds. So we could well have an innate temperament. My own background in part is with child psychology. I did my dissertation on 15 month olds. I've spent an enormous amount of time in schools and preschools and with kids. I love kids and I feel we, we have a deep moral duty to them. And kids have different temperaments. You know, the joke of parents, I don't know, I don't mean to pry. We have two kids. How many do you have? Yeah. I, I have one, but I've yeah. seen my four nieces and nephews grow up. Yeah. And it wasn't until I witnessed them, and now I see it in my own child, that I'm like, wow, we come into this world with our oh, yeah. own personalities and our own, like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, very... My son is very... Uh, he, like, he loves horses. Neither my husband... My husband and I don't not like horses, but we're not really into horses. He's 15 yeah. months old, and he just freaks out about horses and says yeah. nay and just seeing <laughs> his his like passion for things yeah um and he's very loud he's starting to realize he's funny so he's starting to do things knowing that he's gonna get a laugh and yeah. so it's so fun to see this personality that is nature because i i see how we're nurturing him in a certain way we're laughing we're, we're probably encouraging him but i also see that other aspect of like wow he came in with his own personality Exactly right. So there, so there's that part, right? And then life happens, you know? Yeah, and then life. Uh, li yeah, life can be aligned with a person's temperament or it can pound on it. Uh, I think about kids who are more spirited. I think of them as sort of more jackrabbits, right? Rather than yeah. cautious turtles. And it's in, you know, hunter-gatherer bands like we evolved in almost throughout our entire history as a species and then our immediate ancestors. Um, you know, we lived in small bands, so it was really useful to have jackrabbits, you know, as as well as turtles, right? But to be a jackrabbity kid in second grade trapped in a turtle pen taught by a probably a <laughs> turtleish temperament teacher, you know, God bless teachers. I think there's a special place in heaven for them. That's sad. It's tough to be a jackrabbit in a turtle pen with people who are trying to you know, make you a better turtle. And that's tough. That can really wear on people. Right? And then we have our reactions of various kinds. So for me, the bottom line is that the experience we're having in the moment is always whatever it is. And if we fight it, it just sticks around. If I try to suppress the way that, you know, like with my wife, I'll spare you the details. She did something yesterday, said something that just kind of like startled me. And, you know, it was like, whoa. And you know, if I fight that reaction, it's just going to stick around. That's one of the great lessons of, of mindfulness. We need to be mindful. We need to accept the feelings. They are what they are. Uh, the Buddha used this great metaphor of the second dart. You know, the first darts of life, the first arrows of life are inescapable physical and emotional pain. Okay. You, you know, you lose a parent. You lose a loved one. Uh, you hear about something terrible for other people. Uh, you're affected. Uh, but then there are the second darts. 
the reactions we add ourselves, you know, the add on, the, the yammering in our mind, the ruminating about it, the piling on, the making of a righteous case in our mind about those people, blah, blah. So we add those things. Okay. We have our feelings. They arise in the moment. They are what they are. But then the question is, how are we practicing with them? How are we relating to them? Are we stepping back with mindful awareness? Are we bringing compassion to bear? And then are we helping ourselves get whatever the lessons are? You know, lessons or are we helping um, the, the beneficial residues to, sh to sink in? Or are we helping ourselves shift so that the next time that person does that thing, it, you know, it doesn't land on you so hard. Or, and after a few repetitions, it doesn't even trigger you at all. You see right. it, you're, you figure out what to do about it, but you're not at all reactivated by it over time, right? And um, that's to me the fundamental opportunity. Uh, we're not gonna change our core temperament, you know, right? your son's temperament, my kids' temperaments, they are what they are, you know? The, it was pretty clear at birth what their differences were, right? <laughs> yeah. The parents, you know, have one kid think that, oh, I'm the greatest parent in the world, it's all about nurture, but then you have a second child and you realize, wow, so much is really nature, you know? Yeah. So to me, that that's the bottom line. Do we have a practice, right? right? My new book, Neurodharma, it's really about practice. It's really about how can we learn from the wisest, happiest people, the strongest who've ever lived and uh, reverse engineer their state of being increasingly in ourselves. And to me, that makes life incredibly hopeful, no matter how much it sucks. There's always a way you can practice with it today. And there's always something you can, some way you can grow a little, heal a little, learn a little today. And it completely shifts the meaning of the day. And it's especially important when things are at their worst. You know, when yes. it's all yeah. la-di-da and the music's playing and the sun is shining and you're getting one five-star review after another on Amazon. Yeah, you know, you don't need a practice. <laughs> right. When you're trapped at home and when you've lost your job and, and when you, you can't get the food you normally like to eat because it's too complicated these days, uh, you know, you're left with what you've grown inside. And that's a great lesson. Yes, for sure. When I started my own personal journey reading self-help books. I remember I was 17 and it came from this place of wanting to fix myself, like feeling I was broken and feeling like I was too emotional. Like the biggest, my biggest objective was I just want to feel less. Mm. Um, and I want to just be happier. And anytime I felt sad, I had this layer of disappointment. Like I'm I'm sad, but now I'm sad that I'm sad. Exactly. And I'm disappointed yeah. with myself for letting this get to me. And for me, it, it was tapping. A big component of tapping is accepting, is saying, this is how I feel and I accept how I feel. Right. And that was transformational for me. But So I want to understand better because you, you study the brain. Yeah. That is your passion. When it comes to emotions and we're fighting our feelings and we're putting that shame what's going on and and then what happens when we do have this level of acceptance mm. great question um well you know the brain is complicated and so there are different things involved and that said you know that disclaimer i'll kind of cut to the chase uh well 
classically, if we're um, if we feel things, so we have parts of the brain, the limbic system, you know, amygdala, and stuff like that, that gets involved in it. And of course, other parts of the body get involved. You know, we have these uh, sensations, somatic markers, they're called, where they they sort of underlie. For example, let's say, you know, grateful happiness, or they underlie just frustrated anger. You know, these body sensations are underneath it at underneath it all. They kind of anchor it all. So all that's going on. When we move into that quality of acceptance you're describing, multiple good things can be happening. Maybe I'll just mention a couple that go yes. to things people can do that are really useful. So one is, um, I don't know if you do this typically in the tapping protocols, right? Uh, but part of it is to name to yourself in a neutral, simple way what, what you're experiencing. So for exactly example, what we do. Oh, yes. Okay, great. And that could yes. be internal. It could be out loud, right? Um, mm -hmm. It could be very soft, uh, uh, sort of, you know, irritated, worried, flooded, just whatever, simple, you know, um, feel like a little kid. Remember, that's and when when you do that, it's really interesting. Activity in the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala decreases. As you know, there are two amygdalae. We speak of them usually in the singular. Okay, amygdala calms down, and activity increases when we're doing this simple labeling. Neutral. We're just neutral. We're just naming it. You know, uh, activity increases in the prefrontal cortex, right behind the forehead, the area in the brain that's very involved in kind of top-down executive regulation. Uh, you don't want that part of the brain to become an inner tyrant, you know, like the chair of a committee who's always always yelling at you. But there's a, you know, kind of calm clarity lives a lot in that part of the brain. So that's one good thing that people can do. Another that I find really interesting based on some new science these days is to uh, open into a sense of the whole. There are different ways to do that. A really simple way is to feel your body as a whole. So you could do it right now if you like, if you're listening to as you breathe, you know, be aware of sensations, let's say in your chest, and then gradually get a sense of sensations throughout your body all at the same time as you breathe. It's kind of like widening the spotlight of attention. It might crumble initially, but you can stabilize it. I think people who are really in their bodies, like dancers or yoga people, teachers, naturally can do this. Um, it took me a little, you know, effort, but fairly soon you can get a sense of your body as a whole. You can also get a sense of the room as a whole, if you're more visual, just the space you're in. Or let's say you can kind of imagine the whole situation, like let's say you and your partner, you know, everything about it and all the different pressures on your partner and yourself and the other players. And all right. When we get at that sense of a whole, in the brain, two really good things happen. One is that activity in the midline of the top of the cortex, right? If you were to draw a line with your finger from the middle of your forehead back to where your head starts to curl down, uh, per, toward the back half of that lives the default mode network, which is involved with rumination, repetitive anxieties, loops of resentment, and really getting into the past or the future, mental time traveling, which is the basis of a lot of personal upset and a lot of suffering and feeding a lot of problematic emotionality. You know, it's interesting that uh, you may know this research, 
if you ping people randomly um, with their smartphones and just ask them in the moment, are you in the, are you um, mindfully aware or are you distracted? Or is your mind wandering? Are you spacing out, wandering, or, you know, are you in the present or somewhere else? Half the time on average, people are gone. Yeah, <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that means that for people like you who are really quite present, right? There's another person who's gone 80% of the time or something. Anyway, and the more that people are distracted, the, the less they're in the present, the more they tend to tilt negatively in their resting state emotions, right? So the emotions, if you, when you said you were like too emotional, if you were too emotionally contented, grateful, happy, loving, worthy, you know, right? Right, right. You'd be like, I got no problem with being too emotional, right? It's the negative emotions that are, yeah, the issue. And the more we ruminate, the more the default mode is network is active, the more we tilt negatively, right? So when you go into the sense of the whole, and you might have noticed it already in 10 seconds-ish, you know, you decrease activity in the default mode network, and you increase activity in networks on the sides of your brain, especially the right side if you're right-handed because that's the right hemisphere that does holistic gestalt processing. It's switched for many left-handed people. Okay. And when you decrease activity in the default mode, negative rumination decreases. And when you increase activity in these networks on the side of the brain that are involved with the sense of things as a whole, that brings you into the present, uh, brings you into a felt sense of things as they are in the moment, which immediately has a calming, de-stressing effect. And that's great, right? right? And we can always, so those are two, those are two cool little hacks, as it were, that are grounded in science. With, with all the news that's going on right now, and, and just obviously we're flooded by stories, um, so much uncertainty. Why is it so difficult to stay in the moment? I mean, it's just, it seems so easy to read the bad news. Um, it seems incredibly tempting to not be in the present moment. Why is that kind of our, our knee-jerk reaction? Well, there's so many reasons for that, right? And I think one is we don't help ourselves repeatedly experience how good the present feels. And so, because if you think of it, it's our home, you know? If we don't really repeatedly have a sense of how good it is to be home, right? I feel like I'm in a Wizard of Oz movie or something, you know, <laughs> clicking my <laughs> ruby red slippers together. Uh, we, we're not drawn there. And I think part of what's a running theme in deep practice is to help us help oneself really value what's good for us, really enjoy, really enjoy, not as a big finger wagging should, you should be in the present, but rather again and again, it feels so good to be here. So I think that's one kind of sort of reason. A second one is that, uh, frankly, you know, a lot of people don't have very strong, um, it's called technically observing ego or the witnessing capacity, the spiritual traditions might put it. They're not, or they're not very mindfully self-aware. So they're just swept away and they don't have that kind of inner monitor that, that starts in a sense, sending out an alarm or they start when you're spending more than a minute or two caught in some kind of loop of resentment. And that's something we can train. That's a capacity we can can train. So both of these, we can cultivate this really luscious, enjoyable sweetness 
and awe, honestly, and delight. I mean, uh, being in the present, that's great. While also we can train in a sort of a self-awareness quality, a kind of an observing of ourselves, not that we're installing some weird watcher who's criticizing us. It's, I think of it the difference between self-guidance and self-criticism. You know, we can grow a kind of inner voice or an inner guide who says, come on back, come on back, come on back. You know, people talk about uh, training the mind is like training a puppy. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, don't, you don't want to yell at the puppy. The puppy wanders back, wanders away. You go, come on back, little puppy. <laughs> it has that friendly feeling to it. And then I think, of course, the culture. Wow. The brain um, is designed to be changed by our experiences, especially certain kinds, negative ones and ones that are highly sort of stimulating they really work that dopamine pathway and so we train the brain to be um you know to chase stimulation one thing after another you know one one click on your phone the next twitter post if you're into political twitter as i am you want to see the next thing and we have to be really careful kids trained on video games you know a little of that goes a very long way you got to be kind of really careful about that well, there's an inner junkie in a sense for yeah. stimulation. Well, and it's, it's designed like that. I think we should, we should know that. So when, cause I get caught up in it to it and I'm yeah. like, Oh, they're winning. There a lot of people worked on how to make this as addicting as oh, possible. Yeah, exactly right. I, like, you know, it's been studied, uh, how to yeah. keep us engaged more. So it's about having that awareness. I'm curious to hear about, I'd love you to share the negativity bias, because that's something that knowledge from you, I, I found just really helped my own work and just understanding how my own mind works. Yeah. Um, before we, uh, yeah, that's really great. Uh, just when I really underscore this thing, yeah. one way we can use positive neuroplasticity is to, um, when we're doing something that we want to help ourselves keep doing right? When you're training the inner puppy, slow down to zero in on what feels good about it. What feels good about disengaging from stressful chasing of the next Facebook post, right? Uh, what feels good about just sort of being in the present? Here I am. I can make plans while I'm in the present. I can learn from the past while I'm in the present. What feels good about that? And then you can help yourself stay there more in the future. You're turning that experience of, let's say, being in the present or being contented already, you're, you're turning that into a trait, in other words, that you build up over time. So I just want to kind of underline I that. That's that. the key to motivation. Yeah, yeah. So negativity bias, wow, what a great finding from science. So useful. My headline phrase about it is, we have a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And we all know that, right? I had a hundred sweet little moments with my wife yesterday. I had one weird couple minutes. You know, what's the one I'm going to think about? Or, you know, you just see it. It's, it's in life, right? And so it's biological. We're designed to do that because back in the Stone Age or all the way back in Jurassic Park, it was really harsh. It was really intense. Uh, most creatures died while being attacked and eaten by something. Yuck, right? Mm -hmm. So in that, you know, in that environment, you need to avoid sticks like a predator and you need to get carrots like your next meal. But if you don't get a carrot today, you'll have a chance of one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, whack, 
no more carrots forever. So we're biased. We're biased to scan for bad news. And at a time like this with the pandemic, the negativity bias is on steroids. You know, it is turbocharged. So scan for bad news, overfocus upon it, you know, overreact to it, uh, you know, and then fast track that whole package into memory. And then through the stress hormone, cortisol, we, our brain becomes increasingly sensitized to the negative. And this process of sensitization to the negative so that we get a little more reactive, we're a little more prickly, we're a little more prone to anxiety the next day, which then sensitizes us further in a vicious cycle. You know, that process uh, is very powerful and happens with even mild upsetting experiences, especially if they accumulate over time. So that's the way it is. That's the negativity bias. There are some almost trivial offsets. You know, there's a positivity bias for personal memories. We tend to edit pain out of our personal recollections. And some people are overly optimistic. Like I think there's a survey of teenagers where 89% said they were going to be a rock star or a professional <laughs> athlete in their career. Right. And I'm like, you know, go for your dreams, but have a plan B, right? Anyway, so, but on the whole, this is us. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? It's Mother Nature's well-intended feature. Um, I think it's important, A, to feel our feelings and to not ignore or dismiss what is problematic, what's challenging, what's threatening. I'm not a pie-in-the-sky guy. I don't believe in positive thinking. I believe in realistic thinking, okay? Second, pull out of the negative spiral as fast as you can. Don't reinforce it. Step back right. from it mindfully, if nothing else. Name it to tame it, as the saying has it. Um, you know, feel the feelings, but pull out, disengage. Don't feed it uh, and start shifting as fast as you can into solutions, other feelings, what else is true, you know, what else you can be grateful for, who else loves you, et cetera. And again and again and again, when you're not triggered in the moment, Grow the good inside. Look for those opportunities a dozen times a day to let something good, beneficial, authentic, usually mild, but totally genuine, help it sink in. So that increasingly you get resourced so that when the world is flashing red, um, you're less and less inclined to go red yourself. You're still yeah. coping with it. You're still strong. You're determined. You can be fiery sometimes, you speak truth to power, you call people on their stuff, you assert yourself as need, as need be, but not based on getting triggered inside. And that makes yes. all the difference. For me, when I first read um, from you about the negativity bias, the big takeaway I had was to experience more self-compassion so that when I'm doing it, instead of thinking, oh, I'm doing something wrong, it's just saying, okay, this is how I'm wired. So how do I take a step back from this? Yeah. And just, there's something about the understanding that just, it just helps you have more self-compassion instead of thinking that there's something broken or you shouldn't think that. Suddenly you're like, okay, I'm going to be aware of it and I'm going to take a step back. Yeah. Um, Nick and I have this, well, actually I, I have to give Nick credit for this, uh, but I joined in with him when our friends who are authors get one-star reviews on Amazon when they get their first one-star review. We congratulate them. And it started with Nick because <laughs> Nick said, you know, we had the conversation when both our books came out a year apart. And anytime you put something out in the world, it's it's a little scary. It's, a, it's very vulnerable. Yeah, Something's going to read something that you really care about. And so 
the more people who read it, there's absolutely no way everyone's going to like you. And so mm-hmm. the bigger you grow and the bigger voice you have, you're going to have people that don't like you. And so this idea of, well, you haven't, so we, we started saying to ourselves, well, you, we haven't totally made it until we get a one-star review. <laughs> until we have someone who really doesn't like us, it means we're not reaching enough people. Yeah. And so when we each got a one-star review, we were like, high five, we got a one-star <laughs> review, you know, or else you can see the 50 great reviews yeah. and then you just panic about the one person who just didn't like your book. And it's just become this like fun game with other authors who sometimes they'll bring up like, oh, my book is going great. I got all these great reviews, but this one person like said something mean and we're like, yes, congratulations. Like it means that you are having an impact on the world. And it brings me back to so much of what you're teaching, which is this training. Like what Mm. we're doing is training ourselves because we yeah. We are sensitive and yeah. we do care, yeah. but we have to train ourselves to be okay with those things or else we're never going to have the courage to speak up or do anything. Yeah, that's completely true. And, you know, I, I feel in a sense, the, so I'm, I'm deeply interested in practice, right? In how do we relate to our experiences? What started me on my journey was a lot of misery as a kid and I was really unhappy and tried to figure out what to do about it. And so in terms of practice, I think of it as like a bird with two wings, the, the great bird of practice. One wing is being with, being with the way it is, facing reality squarely, seeing the truth, recognizing people in your life who will never be a true friend, uh, recognizing good people in life, feeling your feelings, really just being with what's there. It's really profound. And the other wing is to work with what's there to release and disengage from what's problematic, what's stressful, what's painful for you and others, and to grow the good in yourself, to develop greater peace of mind, greater inner strength, greater resilience, and so forth. So the bird needs two wings to fly, being with and working with. And I tend to talk about working with, and especially the growing of flowers in the garden of the mind, not just pulling weeds there and not just witnessing the garden. But I want to, I do that because I think we tend to forget routinely, whether we're professional or whether we're just an, a regular person trying to help oneself every day, we tend to forget that we need to help ourselves grow the flowers in the garden of the mind that really stick around. And so I talk about that, but it's in this larger context of being with what's there. Right. And which is a very profound part of our own practice. Yes. Well, you have an incredible new book coming out, which uh-huh. is is practical in the sense that you have. Is it seven? Yeah. Seven of practices stuff? of the highest happiness. That's right. Tell us a bit about it. Well, it's really sweet. Uh, if Well, if you want to get good at anything, study people who are really good at it. So if you're interested in mental health, you know, or functioning, <laughs> coping and wisdom, well, study people who've made it their life's work and then reverse engineer back from that. So I think we see in people, the great teachers and and certainly people alive today that we can respect and admire, whatever our orientation is, I think we see these seven qualities in all of them really developed, especially as you approach the peaks of human potential, like frankly, even considering things like awakening or enlightenment or the movement in that direction. And these are seven qualities we can recognize in ourselves, recognize in each other, and grow. So the first is steadiness of mind, stabilizing your attention, stabilizing that self-awareness, stabilizing mindfulness, steadying your mind. It's foundational. Second, warming your heart. 
cultivating greater compassion, kindness, and courage, the capacity to be strong with others while not letting hatred poison you deep down inside. Third, I call it resting in fullness. It really has to do with feeling contentment already, even as we deal with challenges or even as we dream big dreams, a development of inner equanimity, disengaging from craving of various kinds, subtle and gross, and resting more in an underlying unshakable core of resilient well-being that is saturated really with an underlying quality of peace, contentment, and love. Those are the first three, steadiness, lovingness, fullness. And we can all feel them. We recognize them. They're not exotic. They're not for characters in caves in the Himalayas. They're for us too, right? And what the book's a lot about is using the latest brain science in skillful ways to grow these qualities inside ourselves so they're with us more and more wherever we go. The next three qualities also kind of cluster a sense of wholeness, nowness, and allness. By wholeness, I mean accepting yourself fully, feeling whole, and um, resting kind of in a sense of being as we do one thing or another. That's wholeness. Nowness is about, just like you said, what does it take to really be here now, right? To really tap into what Eckhart Tolle called the power of now. Um, we can develop and cultivate the neurological basis, the neural basis for present moment awareness. We really can develop that. So more and more, we're right at the front edge of now, which can feel almost ecstatic as it arises, like, whoa. And you're letting it pass away. Obviously, the present moment is impermanent, passes away. And you can be okay with that nowness, receiving it. You're receiving it right at the front edge of uh, the windshield of consciousness, as it were, you know, receiving the present moment. And then allness, that has to do with the sense of being one with everything, increasingly a sense of, you know, you're you, I'm me, we're distinct from each other, and yet we're clearly part of a larger whole. And to really feel that rather than feeling divided from everything and put upon by everything and beleaguered by everything, opening into allness. Um, and relaxing the sense of ego, the sense of conceit or arrogance or narcissism and not taking life so personally, not getting so caught up in my precious, right? Opening into allness, which uh, for those who are interested in this can have a quite spiritual quality to it where you really start to feel like your living is a local wave, you know, in the sea of allness uh, and all along your nature is water. That's pretty darn cool. And then yeah. the seventh practice, uh, and these are cultivations, but it's we can all drop into it We can and we can stabilize it over time so we can come home to it more and more. And the last one I call finding timelessness, which is a way of talking about growing in our sense of that which is spacious and enduring, uh, not rusting, not subject to passing away, not unreliable. Uh, the Buddha called it unconditioned, that which is not conditioned, unlike ordinary conditioned reality. Uh, there's a quality in it of stillness, you know, timelessness, in other words. And uh, for me, people can relate to that entirely within a secular frame of the ordinary Big Bang universe. I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Well, also, uh, if they care to, and, and I care to, they can start exploring the sense of unconditioned possibility uh, somehow woven together with the conditioned, you know, determined ordinary universe, which might well 
start reaching into something that for them feels quite spiritual, transcendental, even divine. So that's the book in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, and it's very direct. I, I, I let myself write it in a much in a more heartfelt or kind of lyrical, very personal way. And it gets for me, it's it, it gets at the heart of the journey of awakening, including the upper quarter, the upper 10th, the upper parts of human potential, while simultaneously developing these qualities inside that are incredibly useful when the oatmeal hits the fan or when, you know, the pandemic storm is upon us. Yeah. But when we first uh, jumped on this call before we were recording, I commented that I feel like this is a moment that we're all really practicing all the things that we've done for years. Uh, for like, better or worse, you were saying, yeah. Yeah, for, for better or worse. And I hope that for many people, it is an opportunity. I mean, this suddenly life doesn't feel certain. Like there's so much uncertainty yeah. when the certainty was always an illusion. I mean, how much control do we really That's have? Right. So now we're sitting in this uncertainty, which can also open us up to a sense of possibility because now you have to look at your whole world differently. Yeah. So you can, so can this be the moment where you decide, I want to do things differently. I want to pick up this book. I want to start a practice. I want to mm. take this time because before we were so busy in our patterns. Yeah. And now life has forced us to break out of those patterns and now decide, well, how do we how do we pick up from here? I think you're completely right. And um, I think a lot of people wisely are using this as a time to sink deeper roots to grow deeper roots for them in themselves, you know, to invest in themselves is kind of where we started here. And, and the crux of all that is experiences, right? It's experiential practice. What are you feeling and how are you relating to it? How are you, how, and what are you trying to grow inside yourself these days? It's interesting. I don't, I don't know if you've ever done a meditation retreat. So I, I taught a 10 day retreat on this neurodharma material, which any one of which you can go really deeply into, right? Steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, timelessness. You can even do it in a single meditation if people want to try to just kind of feel their way in it over the course of, you know, 30, 45 minutes. So I taught this meditation retreat and it was so powerful to just rest in this material. I didn't invent it. I pulled it together from the depths of the wisdom traditions and also the depths of modern neuroscience. But it's our endowment. It's available to all of us. And and then as it turns out, if people are interested, we recorded it well. We turned it into a really good, simple, inexpensive online program that people with financial need, of course, can do for free. And um, I would encourage people, if they're interested in this material and territory, to look at both the book and that program because they're really good companions for each other. You know, yeah. to do it, it's great to read it. Uh, even to go through the meditations in the in the book kind of on your own. And it's also really great to do it in the frame of an online experiential program because then you can also really, really do it experientially. Yes. We were saying before that this is happening in such a I don't, I don't know if ideal is the word because there's never an ideal time for a yeah. pandemic, but just the idea that 
that we are able to have this conversation. We're able to stay connected. We're able, even if you are home by yourself, you have a way to communicate. When you think about our ancestors, our grandparents, great-grandparents, they weren't in in this position by reflecting really on kind of the history uh, of mankind and everything we've gone through. And then looking at this moment, you really begin to see even when we're really struggling that there are opportunities and that's not to ignore the very real stress and financial burden and, and, and tough situations. I know friends who have lost people, but it is to say that within such a dark moment that there are these things that we can hold on to, that there is something to really be grateful for. Deeply true, honestly. And I think too about really being grateful for others. Like I feel grateful to you and uh, really struck by um, what you said earlier about this is a time that that uh, is in a way full of possibility. Because we've been shaken up, uh, we literally are getting a huge wake up call here. And um, I think one part of it for me at least is to really appreciate other people. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure this is true for you, too. You just see these people who are frontline healthcare workers or just involved or in like our daughter lived in New York City until very recently. She probably had the virus. She came back home to us in Northern California uh, a few weeks ago, stayed in quarantine here in our bedroom. I camped out in the living room. You know, it was like camping in a weird kind of way. Clamping. Very, yeah. high, very <laughs> high end camping. But anyway, and uh you know, in that setting, I, I, I read, I think, something like, gosh, 30, 40, 50 police officers have died from COVID-19, uh, transit workers, all kinds of frontline people. And anyway, just all kinds of people who are making efforts at this time. And we can feel a sense of camaraderie with them, common cause with them, you know. And I, I think that's one of the possibilities of this time as well, to really appreciate in a whole new kind of way uh, the unsung heroes that knit the fabric of society together every day, including a million moms. I mean, a lot more than a million, millions of moms, you know, who as research shows, my first book was about nurturing mothers. Uh, you know, research shows they tend to do so much unpaid work for mm -hmm. the community and for the family and otherwise. And, and it's easy to not to take it for granted and we should never do that. Yeah. Well, Rick, thank you so much for spending time with us. If people want to stay in touch with you, I'm going to put your details in the show notes, but how can they stay connected with you and, and learn about these great programs that you have? Well, thank you. Uh, best place is my website, rickhanson.son.net. Uh, we have a, a lot of good social media also, through Facebook, Instagram. I've started doing Facebook Live things. Um, it's really neat stuff. So uh, that's a good way. But the best place, go to the website. It's really full of resources, almost all of them free, tons and tons of good stuff there. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Jessica. Thank you. <laughs>